living the word today. So, every time we open this book, it is a fresh opportunity for God to talk to us. Let's make sure, let's make very sure that we are listening to what he wants to say to us. Livingthewordtoday.com. Look, the message of the Bible does indeed prepare us for eternity, but it also prepares us for the day we are currently living. Welcome to Living the Word Today. We invite you to spend the next few minutes studying God's Word with your Bible teacher, Jesse Wagoner. Pastor Wagoner's desire for you is not only to understand God's truth, but to help you live it today. More resources can be found on our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Now it is time to open your heart and your Bible for your time in the Word. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Habakkuk, back in the Old Testament. We continue our study we began last week. We'll be jumping into that. Well, I'm going to... Uh, Anytime you get into a book of prophecy, especially these minor prophets, uh, it, they have a different flavor. And I'll just warn you, the flavor is going to be different today. I don't have a single joke planned for you. Because this is heavy stuff. And uh, you see that Pastor uh, uh, Adam uh, shared a, a multi-part study some time back. It's still online. I encourage you to go see it if you want to go watch it. But on the book of Obadiah where it's just this, this very weighty judgment of God's statement uh, poured upon the people that were his hearers. And you think about judgment. We live in a world where even we, and it says up there on the screen in front of you, learning to live by faith. But even people of faith, sometimes we struggle with this concept of the judgment of God, the, the holy wrath of God. And we, there's reasons for it, and we'll talk about some of those reasons why in our culture, in our thinking, even in our Christian culture, it's difficult because we don't want to think of those things. And, and, and sometimes even our sensibilities are struck. Will, will God really punish? Will God really pay back? Is there really rest, uh, retribution for sin? Does God really condemn people to hell for all eternity? I mean, those are, those are weighty things, and those are not things that we, you know, you know, we, we approach with any kind of glee, but we, we treat them with reverence and respect because it's God's word and it's God's nature. So I'll just warn you in advance that we're going to do that. And I just, what I'd like to do is help us all as we look at the, this next section of Habakkuk, just to kind of make sure that we have the right frame of reference when it comes, particularly these prophetic statements and these difficult things. Because even people of faith, people like you and I, sometimes we struggle with these realities. Now, just to bring you up to date, we looked at the first four verses of chapter 1 last time. And Habakkuk is decrying the wickedness and the corruption of his surroundings, his environment, his world, his country. And his people were, who were the, the recipients of the covenant of God. These were covenant people. They were descendants of Abraham. God had brought the law through Moses. King David was, was their, their hero of past in, in the political and, the, and also in the religious realm. Solomon built this great temple that they worshipped at. And now it's all just sort of fallen to this constant cycle of disobedience, violence, selfishness, and idolatry of worshiping even in the temple of God, worshiping other idols. It got so bad that King Manasseh has recorded that, that, uh, that it just did all sorts of things. And I, I really couldn't pick many kings. It just did all kind of horrible things. And you can read about that in First and Second Kings. You read about it in First and Second Chronicles as well. So he's, he's saying those things, and he basically says, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm crying to you because of all these problems, and you're not hearing. 
Well, God does answer, and he begins that answer in verses 5 and following. And I assure you, based on his response that you'll get in just a little bit as we go further in this study, it was not the response that he wanted. So I want to read verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 for our study this morning. And listen, and by the way, listen for the adjectives. Listen for the descriptors. Listen to the emotional uh, programming that's in, the, in this text, okay? Because it, it, it elicits a particular emotion. And it's not one of glee, it's one of somberness. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astonished. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans a bitter and hasty nation who marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also swifter than leopards and, and more fierce than the evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as an eagle that hastens to eat. God will ensure and enact retribution, payback, if you will, for sin. And there's five descriptors. And I'm just going to bring them all up at one time and get them on the list in front of you. But this retribution is astounding. That's verse 5. It's uh, overwhelming. That's verse 6. It's unstoppable, that's verse 7, and it's swift, that's verse 8. So let's just go through these quickly and just sort of get the flavor of them, and I'll make a few comments on this text, and then I want to broaden our, our, our thinking out a little bit different, how we approach this, how do we react, how we respond, what we, what we should be motivated to do based on the reality that God will grant retribution for sin, God will judge sin. And you understand that God is a God of great love, and we love that. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. God is a God of patience. And we understand that He's perfect and infinite in all of those attributes. But I assure you on the basis of God's Word, He's just as perfect and just as complete and just as right in His attributes of righteousness and holiness and the wrath He has directed at the sins of mankind. He says, look among the nations and watch. He says, you've asked the question, Habakkuk, now watch. Just look around. You're going to see this. Watch. Be utterly astounded, exclamation point. Astounded means, I can't process this. I can't believe this. I can't, I can't get my hands and my mind around this. To just be sort of left speechless, dumbfounded. So you just watch and you're going to be astonished at what I'm about to do. For I will work a work in your days. That's pretty personal, doesn't it? This is not the retribution and the judgment of sin at the end of the ages, the great white throne working way out there in the future somewhere. He says, no, you're going to see it in your days. You're going to witness this. You're going to experience it. You're going to feel it. You're going to know it. He says, which if it were told you, which you would not believe, though it were told you. I'm going to tell you, you're, going to, you're, not, you're just going to say this can't be. You're going to just shake your head because it's astounding. Have you noticed this in your Bible study? Have you noticed this in your life? God seems to delight in doing the unexpected. Maybe it's not that he does the unexpected. Maybe we're just basically clueless most of the time. That may be the case. But God just does something that we just, where did that come from? What is that all about? I, I, don't, I don't get it. Just bam, and there you are, right? He says, you're going to see this, and you're going to be astounded. Secondly, overwhelming, verse 6. 
For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I'll repeat it. It bears repeating. The Chaldeans is just a synonym for the Babylonians. At this particular time in history, six centuries before the time of Christ, the Babylonians were on the ascendancy in their empire. They were ruled over what, by a man that history knows as Nebuchadnezzar II. We just know him in the Bible by Nebuchadnezzar. That's the same Nebuchadnezzar you run into in the book of Daniel, which occurs after the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem and carried away captives. And uh, he was a man that was a great military leader, very powerful. Their empire was one of the great empires that David talked about in, as he had a preview in his prophecy of all these Gentile world powers and one more Gentile world-dominating power to come, as we understand it from the time of the Antichrist yet to come. So he says, that's who we're talking about. He says, notice God says, I am raising them up. It's not they just happen. It's not just like, wow, didn't see this coming. This is just some accident, just some random convergence of events in history to bring the, the Babylonians to power. He said, no, I'm doing it. I'm allowing it. I'm causing it. It's going to cause Habakkuk some problems as he gets a little bit further into the text. He describes them this way in the middle of verse 6. A bitter and hasty nation who marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They're overwhelming. They're just going to roll over everything. Led by this man, Nebuchadnezzar, that we just talked about. They are bitter and hasty. Not people you want to hang around with. They're not polite, they're not kind, they're not generous, they're vicious, they're quick and hasty. They just do, and hasty has the idea of impulsive, just sort of like a brute beast. And notice he says in the end of 6, to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. If they're going to possess places that are not theirs, that means somebody is going to be dispossessed. And that's Israel, that's Judah of this time. They're going to be dispossessed, they're going to come in, they're going to invade, they're going to conquer. Now this conquering took place beginning in 606 B.C. If you'll read about the last three chapters of the book of 2 Kings, you'll get the whole overview. The last really legitimate king of Judah was Jehoiakim, and uh, the Babylonians come in, and uh, they, they, their desire was to just dominate a people and subjugate them, let them continue to run their world and their society as long as the money and the power was flowing back to the, to the mothership, if you want to say it, back in Babylon. So with that in mind, they, they come in, they depose Jehoiachin, they set up a, a couple or three puppet kings, and later a governor, just to keep everything in place. And so that starts in 606 B.C. So we know this is just before that. That's the reason we target and place Habakkuk in that time frame. So, but then there was some of these who rebelled, and there's a series of rebellions, and finally by 586 B.C., remember in B.C. time you're counting downwards toward the present, so in 586 B.C., finally they've had it. The Babylonians come in. They laid siege to the city. It's a, it's a dreadful experience described in the last chapter of 2 Kings. They lay siege to it. They build a ramp. They breach the walls. Jerusalem is destroyed. There's people slaughtered. They carry off everything that's precious that can be carried off. The beautiful temple that Solomon built is raised to the ground. And all the articles and all the things, the tabernacle before it and the temple after, all those are carried off that are worth anything to Babylon. By the way, that's the last time we hear of the Ark of the Covenant in biblical history when the Babylonians invade. Some people believe that the priest hid it before the Babylonians come and someday we'll dig it up somewhere. I know what Indiana Jones supposedly did, but that's just fiction, you know. But all, everything is destroyed. Everything is smashed. Everything is, is done with. Why? Because these people dispossess Judah. Verse 7, 
Look at these descriptions. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment, their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. These terrible and dreadful people just do what they want. They are a law in unto themselves. There's no one you can appeal to. There's no one coming to help. They, just, they will do anything they decide to do. So we say they're unstoppable. There's nothing you can do about it. Israel can't do anything about it. Judah can't do anything about it. Your king can't do anything about it. The priests can't do anything about it because I have declared because of Israel's sin, these things are going to happen. And then lastly, the description in verse 8, it's swift. The destruction will come in a very quick manner. It says their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Fast and vicious. What a combination. When they come, it's just going just to take place fast. You have no hope, no defense. And this is spoken from the mouth of a God who saved his people multiple times. If you just go back in history from where this prophecy is given, uh, not too many years in the past, there was a king by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a righteous king. He, he led reforms. He reinstituted genuine worship of the true God of Israel. And the Assyrians, the, the kingdom of the Gentiles that preceded in dominance the Babylonians, came calling. And it's a great story. If you don't know Hezekiah's story, go to the Bible and read it. It's fascinating. But God, by his power, strikes down the Assyrian army. In one night, an angel goes through the camp of the Assyrians and kills 185,000 of them, just like that. And they go home. So God is able to protect. He said, here, no protection, no defense, because I have determined it. So it's an astounding judgment. It's an overwhelming retribution. It's an unstoppable expression of the wrath of God, and it will be a swift doom and destruction upon Judah. I think that probably Habakkuk was not wanting to hear that. But that's what God said. And sometimes we who are people of faith have a hard time dealing, yes we do, with the fact that God will judge and God will pay, will pay back sin. Now there's several reasons that we struggle with this. A couple of them I'll just give you. One is we live in a very permissive society where basically anything goes. Things that were once defined biblically as right and wrong are now redefined as either tolerable or preferred. We live in a way where wrong is called right and right is called wrong. You understand that very permissive society. And that, let's just face it, even as God's people, this, this, we live in this world, it, it rubs off just a bit. And then we live in a world where no one seems to want to take responsibility for our own actions. Now, I, I've, I, you've seen this. Have you seen on TV or on social media some celebrity when they have to apologize for something? You know, the celebrity apology, something, something outrageous has happened and, and uh, the PR people run them out in front of the cameras. And the, and the apology usually gets something like this. Well, I just want to apologize to my fans, my followers, or whoever, my, you know, whoever it is. And, you know, I, I, I really want to just give my apology. And I, I want to just let you know I take responsibility for this. And I'm always in my mind thinking, self-justification coming in three, two, one. But you know what? That's not who I am. You did it. That's who you are. It, I mean, that doesn't mean you, want to, you don't want to be that person or you're not that person all the time. But, and then it's like, but you know what? I've had this issue or this crisis or this mental health issue or this a substance problem or the one that's, uh, one that's my favorite is. You know, being a celebrity puts so much pressure on me that sometimes the pressure just gets to you and you do something outrageous. Now, it's easy to pick on celebrities, isn't it? Because I don't think we have any of them in the room. But you know, sometimes we do the same thing. Well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, I should have done that, what I said I'd do. And then it's, 
self-justification coming in three, two, one. But you know what? You know, I was really tired. I was stressed. I was this. I was that. No, we just need to own it. We, we live in a world where we don't own our own responsibility. And God calls us as God's people to confess our sins, to confess that we are sinful to each other, to not act like we're not. Because Jesus, excuse me, John says in, in his epistle that anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. And the truth isn't in him. That's us. So we live in that kind of world. We live in a world where, where we just think everything should be excused. And I just, that's, what, that's probably why Habakkuk is not a, a favorite book and why the minor prophets are not favored on a reading list. There's not too many verses from the minor prophets that show up at the bottom of Hallmark cards. You know, this is, this is, it's, just, it's just what it is. So how do we handle this? How do we, how do we understand this? Well, I want to just take you to a verse of Scripture, a few verses of Scripture that's found back in Deuteronomy. You can turn there if you like, or I'm going to read it to you, whichever you prefer. But Deuteronomy chapter 4 takes us back to Moses' time. Now, we've rolled back in history about 900 years before the time of Habakkuk, okay? So about 1,500 years before the time of Christ. But, so 900 years before this judgment that he's saying is going to happen in Habakkuk's time, God said this, and I'm in verse 25 of Deuteronomy 4. God, he's just entered the covenant with them. They're just about ready to enter the land of the promise after their 40 years in the wilderness. He says this, When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to wrath. By the way, that's where they were repeatedly, unrepentantly at the time of Habakkuk. Verse 26, I will call heaven, to, heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. There's been a warning in the books for nearly a millennium. They could read it. They had access to it. God does not bring judgment and retribution without warning. We've been warned. We stand warned. He's given us a conscience to warn us about something, even if we refuse the word of God. And then we have the word of God certainly available. So it is without warning. Also, it's, we understand, and there's two places you can look, chapter 20 and 25 of Jeremiah. We're not going to take time to read those passages this morning. But in those passages through Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Habakkuk, Jeremiah specifically said the Babylonians are going to come in, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the guy in charge, we're going to be defeated, and we're going to be carried captive for 70 years. After the 70 years, a restoration of that small remnant that will still remain. And that took place, you understand. So, let's think about this thing of retribution, this thing of, of how we handle it. There's a verse of Scripture that you're familiar with and one that you know very well. If not, I would encourage you to memorize it because you can certainly use it in your own life and you can use it as you share with others who need to hear about Christ. It's found in the 6th chapter and the 23rd verse of Romans. It simply says there, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says so much in so few words. That's why it's a good verse to get tucked away in memory. But notice the bad news at the beginning. The wages of sin is death. Death. Would you say that with me, that last word? The wages of sin is? That's what God says. We didn't write it. Paul didn't dream it up. It's just the way it is. Sin results in death. 
That is the only thing that pays for sin. We all have sinned, so we all have the sentence of death upon us. And here in the end, he's not just talking about even physical death, but he's, which is part of it, certainly. We're talking about eternal death and condemned and apart and separated from God in a place of punishment. I'm glad the verse does not stop after the word death. But you understand that is part and parcel of what he's saying. And why when we read verses like 5, 6, 7, 8 and other verses in the, in the Old Testament about God's wrath and judgment, how do we respond to it? Because even we as people of faith, sometimes that just kind of straddles us. It shakes us. Well, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He loved us enough that he gave us a way out. He gave us a remedy. It is not, an ex- it's not sin is excused. It is that sin is paid for. It is still paid for. Retribution has already been made. But there was one person who was not under the sentence of death because of sin. And that was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who knew no sin, who experienced no sin, who practiced no sin, who committed no sin. So he had nothing to die for except he could die in our place. And through his death on the cross, that punishment is placed on him. Now, it only works for us if we accept it, if we believe it, if we take that gift and what a gift it is. You'd think people would be flocking to a gift, wouldn't you? I would suspect if we put a billboard out here facing the interstate and says, come Sunday, an expensive free gift offered. we, we, We might get a few people in the door at least one time. And we could give them maybe an expensive gift, perhaps. But you know, that gift is not going to last forever. It's going to break. It's going to wear out. It's going to be old. It's going get, to get hauled off to goodwill someday. But you know what? This gift is for eternity. And all we need to do is not work for it, not earn it, not do a bunch of religious things, not join a church, not do other things. Not even, it doesn't even call us to quit doing bad things. Now that will come as we know Christ. But it's just coming and believing, believing in him. And that invitation is open to every single one of us. And I would suspect the majority of us have received that gift of salvation. That's where we go with judgment. Yes, judgment is deserved. We are deserving. Every one of us deserves the full, unbridled, unrestrained, unfiltered wrath of God. But it laid on him the iniquity of us all. So... Let me just give you a statement, and this statement is not mine, and I failed to jot down when I copied it who actually said it, so I'm not plagiarizing, but I'm also not giving full attribution, so I'm sorry about that, but I love this. This said it so well. Every sin will receive its just recompense. Either we pay for it ourselves or through faith, we'll accept his payment upon the cross on our behalf. It is an either or. If you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in him, you can do so right now. And you can receive the gift of God. God's got a gift waiting for you. It's reserved in your name if you'll just trust him. If you have questions about that or you want to talk to somebody or pray with somebody, we would love to have that conversation. We could have it right after this service or any other time. But we would just ask that, that, that you consider that and accept that. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Two things I want to summarize with as, as we make a summary of, of this, this passage that has so much devastation in it. First of all, we need to take sin seriously and its consequences for the lost. People are lost without Christ. 
the full wrath of God rests on one piece of people without Christ. And somewhere, sometime, someone in some fashion brought you the good news. Maybe it was someone that stood in a pulpit like this. Maybe it was your parents, a loving mother or father that knew Christ and brought you to the Savior. Maybe it was somebody knocked on your door and said, hey, can I talk to you? Maybe it was that friend at school. Maybe it was that coworker. Somebody was the agent to bring it to you. When we think about the wrath of God, we think about the judgment of God, the retribution of, uh, for sin that God brings to bear, that should motivate us. That should propel us. Stand ready to share. To live differently and share what that difference is and who makes the difference in us. It also makes a difference if you are lost, and I've already talked about that. But we need to take seriously sin's consequences for you and I. Well, you say, well, I'm under the blood. Praise God for that. I'm, I'm saved eternally. Yes, amen. Good stuff. But we, as we live through our days on this earth, we live in a very permissive world, a world that excuses even the worst of sin. We don't take responsibility as a culture for, for anything wrong. We expect that even in many religious circles, God's just going to sweep everybody into his loving arms someday, regardless of the conditions for salvation that God has set forth in the Scripture. You and I need to live righteous lives, holy lives. We've already said we, we struggle with sin. But this would be the motivation. We read passages like this to say, Lord, help me to live righteously. May we say with David of old in that wonderful psalm, Lord, search my heart, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me. And when we find those things there, we confess that we forsake it. We put the, we put the safeguards and the, and the guardrails and the accountability into our lives so that we can have a better opportunity to live lives of holiness and righteousness. Why? Because sin is bad. Sin is worthy of death. Yes, salvation is free, but it costs the God, the Father, His Son, and costs His Son His life. Because the wages of sin is death. So we need to be warned about that. And I, there's an old song, you know it well. If you've grown up in church, you do. It was written 264 years ago by a man named Robert Robinson. And the next to the last stanza, and there's more stanzas he wrote than actually we find in our hymnal. The next to the last stanza says this, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. This is the stanza that kind of cuts through to the reality of our lives, doesn't it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I love how he ends this. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it to thy courts above. We need to take seriously the consequences of sin. For the lost, absolutely. For the world, absolutely. For the history, yet future, absolutely. We need to take it seriously for ourselves. We pray with you. Thank you for joining us for Living the Word today. 
We appreciate your sharing in this study of the scriptures. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you will not miss a single episode. And thanks, too, for your prayers and for letting others know of this ministry as we seek to be living the Word today. We would love to have your feedback and to hear from you, and the best way to contact us is through our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.